This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. The speaker is Shyla Catherine. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. So the title of the talk this evening is On Kinds of Thinking. And there's a line in the middle-length discourses that I find quite inspiring. It says, a liberated one will think whatever thought he wishes to think, and he will not think any thought that he does not wish to think. I find that inspiring. What a possibility. To not be controlled by the patterns of the mind, to not be seduced by our various whims, to not be a slave of conditioning. Are you there yet? I think most of us would identify more closely and experience with the statement made in the Udana that says, not understanding thoughts, one runs back and forth with wandering mind. There are so many thought patterns that can happen in a day, in a meditation session, let alone in a week or in our lives. Did you notice if you were thinking in the last meditation session? Were you conscious of any thoughts? Were they interesting thoughts? Were they original thoughts? Were they worth your time and energy to be thinking them? Every once in a while we do have a very interesting or useful thought, but it isn't all that often, surprisingly. (laughs) Even if you've watched a movie that you really, really like, How many times can you watch it and still find it engaging and interesting? Usually not that many. And yet sometimes we'll sit down and we'll realize that we go over and over and over the same thought again and again. Maybe with slight changes, we might add a character now and then, we might change the ending or the result, we might develop the analysis a tiny bit this way or that way, but basically it's the same thought. Sometimes I wonder why it is that people seem to take refuge in their own thoughts or seek sanctuary in the world of fantasy. And Often it may be simply because we're afraid we won't exist without the company of our own narration. We stimulate ourselves mentally to be aware of our own existence because our stories, though they sometimes tell us lies, at least tell us that we're here. We can let the mind grow quiet, though, when we meditate. We can be present with the genuine and subtle experience of the body sitting, of the sensations of the breath. And surprisingly, this can be quite transformative and actually not very boring at all. Sometimes our thoughts appear to be logical sequential, and sometimes they appear crazed, random, built on wild associations. Classically, we call this associated thinking, these conceptual proliferations. The conceptual proliferation, the poly term is papancha. And this associative thinking, this rambling of the mind, is understood to spring 
from three sources, that of craving, conceit, and views. Craving is in Pali Tanha, conceit is Mana, and views is Diti. And these are considered to be the sources from which proliferation arises. When you're thinking, do you ever notice if it's what's feeding it, what its source is? Is it based in craving, conceit, or views? On one retreat, I developed a kind of game that I would play. And when a thought arose, I would look at the thought, and I would just really quickly identify it, craving, conceit, or views. Just one of them. And I imagined having three bins, you know, three little kind of bins, and I would toss the thought into the bin, sort of like, you know, you'd toss a crumpled up piece of paper into a trash bin or you'd shoot a ball into a basket. I imagined just tossing my thought right into the craving bin or into the views bin or into the conceit bin. It turned out to be a rather effective way of just dispelling the proliferation very quickly because it didn't matter to me what the content and the story and the scenarios were. All I needed to do was discern what the root was. Oh, it was coming out of conceit. It was coming out of craving. And then I would drop it in that bin and return right back to the experience of the body sitting and the sensations of the breath. So she's asking, what am I, do I mean by views? You know, views are actually interesting. You can have views that could be like beliefs, where you have positioned a thought, a, you've, you've taken a position on something. In the Buddhist tradition, views often circle around the view of self, because when we have an opinion, when, we have a, when we've taken a position, we are taking a stand as a self in this world. I am like this, I have this view, I belong to this perspective, this religion, this group. The identity grows around views. Sometimes we can have very strong views about what we believe or what our perceptions and perspectives are, how we think things should be. And these are all included in the category of views. I'd actually like to look a little bit at each of these, craving, conceit, and views. Craving might be obvious. Trying to get more pleasure, trying to get the things that we want. If desire is projected upon an object, then craving festers. We invest that object with the belief or the thought that it is, will satisfy me. We invest it with a perception of beauty and assume that it is attractive and therefore reinforce the agreeableness and the desirability of it. But the Buddha said in the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses, sensuality does not lie in the pretty object. They are only the raw materials for sensuality. Sensuality is the desire in the mind. Never mind about the beautiful objects in the world, but the sage gives up the desire for them. So the Buddha is not saying to avoid or to deny or to ignore pleasant, beautiful things in the world. He's suggesting that we 
focus our attention on the mind because that's where tanha, that's where craving lies. Let the pleasant things be as they are. They're pleasant, that's fine. But we don't need to stir up craving for them. So we look at our relationship to those experiences. Now, conceit, manapapancha, refers to the way that the mind identifies itself with objects and experiences. So this often circles around comparing. I am better, I am worse, or I am equal to you. By comparing, the mind structures a context so that the sense of self can arise in relationship to another. Judging, pride, conceit, comparison, these are all classic manifestations of manapapancha. Do you ever compare yourself with others? Do you compare yourself with your colleagues? Do you compare yourself with your siblings? Do you compare yourself with other meditators? Sometimes uh, we can notice comparing arising when we feel really proud of ourselves or when we judge ourselves badly. Several decades, a few decades ago in the early 80s, I was sitting a meditation retreat and I had only recently started my retreat practice. It was on my second retreat. But I had an experience that was very vivid of this conceit, this comparing mind. And what had happened was we had a really nice retreat. It was a 10-day silent retreat. And at the end of the retreat, we broke silence. Okay, normal, right? So we broke silence in the meditation hall, and we were asked to just sort of like, you know, converse with people around us to just start to get used to talking again after the 10-day silent period. And the person who was sitting behind me leaned forward and started to speak to me. And I was really happy to speak to her, so we, we spoke for a moment. And she said that I was such an incredible inspiration for her. And as soon as she said that, I felt such pride. I mean, I was only on my second retreat, and I was already inspiring other people. Ah, I felt such pride. <laughs> I was aware of the pride. But as she finished, as she went into the second sentence of this statement, she said that she felt so inspired by me because it was the very first time that she felt that she was a good meditator. Because she said every time she opened her eyes, I was in a different position. (laughs) Which was true. When I started my practice, I could not sit at all. I'd cross my legs this way, I'd cross my legs that way, then I'd go to the kneeling, and then I would do this. I just couldn't get comfortable. So the pride immediately went into this shame and this embarrassment. (laughs) And this kind of comparing, where we feel success in relationship to others, or we feel pride in relationship to being seen a certain way, and all these things, it's just the activity of the comparing mind. The comparing mind. We don't know how we should be. We are how we are right now. We can sense how skillful it is. We can try to improve ourselves. But basically the experience is as it is. The question is, are we willing to know our experience as it is? And are we willing to work with 
and be with that experience with as much wisdom and as much compassion as we can muster. Now, views, diti papancha, can manifest as beliefs, as attitudes, as opinions. It often arises as a way of trying to find a sense of security and identity through constructing certain thoughts about what we believe and where we belong. The mind can form opinions and concepts just to feel secure, to feel like we know our place in the world. And prejudices and preconceived ideas are classic examples of ditipapancha when it solidifies or becomes extreme. The proliferations and expectations can be mediated by concepts, ideas that we have about how things should be done. What's the right way, the best way to do an activity? What's the right way, the best way to meditate? Many religions have very strong belief systems, very rigid views about how things should be done. You'll notice we're pretty casual in this group. I mean, we don't even ask you to take your shoes off when you walk in here. But there are plenty of groups that have very strict rules and views about how one should meditate, you know, what you should wear, how you should sit, how you should enter the room, what you should do before you sit, when you sit, after you sit. I mean, there's a lot of different rituals. And people can become quite attached to their rituals. But this attachment is considered to be this hindrance, this fetter of views. We can notice our opinions and our views when we travel. Because if you've ever traveled to another culture, another country, and spent some time there long enough to get away from the, the, the tourist circuit, then you'd probably realize that your way of doing things is not the only way of doing things. In fact, nobody enjoys traveling if they're attached to their own views. It's truly painful then. But if we can take traveling as the joyful opportunity to have a reflection on our views, to see where we position ourselves and to question that there was a right way of doing things, a right way of being, then traveling becomes a practice of insight, a kind of pilgrimage. A pilgrimage where we cultivate this capacity to let go of views. I think it can be interesting to sometimes consider our current obsessions. What category do you think your thoughts were falling into today? Was there more craving? Maybe just in that last, that last half an hour meditation session. Was there more craving? Was there more conceit? Or was there more views? The structure of these three kinds of proliferation give us a, a useful tool to investigate and our own thinking processes so that we can explore what the underlying forces are that perpetuate our obsessive thinking. The mind can be quite intriguing. The character of our thoughts is worth noticing because they will dominate our moods, they'll limit our potential, and they'll influence the experience that we have 
of whatever is going on. Thoughts have a huge influence on us, but do you know what a thought is? What is a thought, actually? They're powerful, but how do they function? Where do they reside? What gives rise to them? One method for developing insight meditation is to use a label, to label our experience with the um, thought or the word, such as thinking, thinking, thinking. So when thinking arises, we label it thinking, thinking, thinking. When hearing is occurring, we label it hearing, hearing, hearing. When we're feeling coldness, we label it cold, 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 or sensing, sensing, sensing. When we're feeling the rising of the belly, we might label it as rising, rising, rising. When we're feeling the hardness of the seat, we might label it as hard, hard. When I practiced this method some time ago, I found it to be quite interesting to notice what the thoughts were in particular. What labels would I choose for thinking? It's quite sufficient in this method to just label it as thinking, 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 so we know that a mental object is occupying attention. But it can also, in this approach, be interesting to start to break down the thought patterns by the use of the labels. So instead of labeling all thoughts as thinking, I would notice what kind of thoughts they were. So I might label some thoughts as planning. Do you notice when you're planning? Did you plan anything today? Did it need to be planned? Some things do need to be planned, but that's not most of the planning that we do. I mean, you do have to plan a certain amount of things to accomplish anything. If you want to do a project, you need to get the materials together. You need to organize your time and your calendar. You need to plan to do it. When you're going to do it, how you're going to do it, what training you need to do it, what resources, all these things. You have to do a certain amount of planning. You want to go on a trip, you have to plan. If you don't plan in advance, you won't have a plane ticket. You won't put anything in your suitcase. You'll forget to call the airport shuttle. You have to plan to do things. So on a, on a practical level, of course, we have to plan. But have you ever found yourself planning things that you know you actually cannot control and don't need to plan at all? Okay, I planned this talk, right? There are quite a few pages here. I planned it, I prepared it, I wrote it. But... Maybe when we're sitting and meditating, we don't have to plan what our experience is going to be. Maybe we don't have to plan how to become calm. Maybe we don't have to plan how to give rise to insight. Another kind of thought that I've often noted is fabrication or rumination. That's basically when a stimulus occurs. Maybe we hear something. And then we make up a story about it. Or we see something, and then we make up a story about it. We pick up fragments of sensory input, and the mind develops a plausible scenario about what's happening there. It can develop into a full and rather wild tale sometimes. 
and it can distort then how we're perceiving the experience. A student um, told me a very classic, a very clear example of this, where she had neighbors who, who she didn't care for so much. They were a little bit rough. They were a little rude. They had a noisy car and a messy yard. And one time she heard this screeching in their backyard. And she called the, the police, believing that they were abusing their child. It turned out to be two feral cats fighting. <laughs> but because of the views that she had about them, because she had this, this, there was a stimulus of an actual screaming, screeching, screaming sound, she came to a conclusion that was really quite wrong about what was actually happening there. And this is not so uncommon where we have a, an experience and then the mind turns it into something else. And so we can ask ourselves sometimes when we see the mind developing stories and thoughts, we can ask ourselves just if it's true and if we know it to be true. Studies have shown that the stimulus in the brain is quite similar for emotions and for the vividness of thoughts, um, whether the story is imagined or it's an event that actually happened. So when we retell ourselves something, when we reimagine something, when we ruminate about something, we keep re-stimulating ourselves as though it is actually happening right now. The chemical and the electrical responses can be very similar. If this um, gets out of hand, some people find it difficult then to actually tell what really happened from what they just thought had happened. They find it difficult sometimes to distinguish imagination from fact, from reality. And the more frequently the rumination happens, the more frequently that the scenario is repeated in the mind, it actually can become just like their own reality. There's another kind of thought, which is called rehearsing. Have you rehearsed what you might say to somebody? This is the classic rehearsing. What you will do, what you will say, how you will respond. It doesn't seem so strange until you start to rehearse what the other person will say back to you. And then it's completely impossible. It's completely disconnected with reality. Now, daydreaming, you're probably familiar with. Most people have found themselves daydreaming at some point or another. Maybe some long airplane ride or some time when you were in school and when you were young or in high school and were just sitting there waiting for the class to end, daydreaming away. When we're daydreaming, we can be oblivious to what's actually happening 
It's about the opposite. It's just about the opposite of mindfulness because we're completely entranced in the tale that we weave. We might be playing the hero. We might be playing the victim. We might be playing the innocent bystander. But whatever role we're playing, we're also directing. We're the writer of the script, and we're, we designed the scenery. We're directing the acting, and we've even selected the musical accompaniment. It we can create a dream that will fulfill all our imagined desires. I think the seductiveness of daydreaming might be because we seem to have so much control. We seem to be able to create the story that pleases us. But actually, what happens is we become more and more distant from the potential to really be alive to our own lives. Now, judging, ranking, and assessing is another set of types of thought. There are many cultural codes that create a kind of social rank. I mean, dress is an obvious one. Dress, hairstyle... In some cultures, um, the very name of, the, uh, of a person establishes where they are in society. In some cultures, the way we speak, the language that we use, the accent or the pronunciation, or even the words that we use and who we're speaking to reinforces different social positions and social ranks. Sometimes we compare ourselves, rank ourselves, assess ourselves based not only upon social position or wealth, but also upon gender so that we can quickly size ourselves up as who we are in relationship to each other. We can try to assess who's the most compassionate person here, who's the wisest person here. Who's the tallest? Who's the shortest? Who's the the youngest? Who's the oldest? We might rank not only ourselves in a group, but we might compare ourselves, rank ourselves, judge ourselves against our ideal image of what a spiritual person is like, of what we think we should be like. We might feel jealous, angry, threatened if we meet somebody who in some way or other challenges our rank. Maybe we're in a group and we're obviously the smartest one there. And then somebody comes in and knows something more than we do. Do we feel threatened? Maybe not so much in a meditation group, but what about in your professional setting? This comparing, ranking, assessing can happen also in relationship to teachers. Okay. Teachers are expected to be wise. They're expected to be compassionate. They're expected to be calm. But do you know anybody who's wise, compassionate, and calm all the time? If so, they're probably in, you know, one of the enlightened ones, you know, one who's fully aware, fully enlightened. Because in the Buddhist tradition, even the third level of enlightenment, even after extensive, I mean, remarkable insights, there's still some desire and aversion, greed and hate that is with a, a tendency toward. So 
teachers are struggling along, working on the, on, on the path. But many times, if we expect our teachers to be perfect, if we expect them to, be, to fit the ideal or put them up on a pedestal, when they end up being normal human beings who are struggling along but have practiced for a while longer or learned a little bit more, we see some error that they made. It can sometimes be devastating to students and question the faith in the practice because we judge. So it's important to look at this movement of judging as just judging and not believe the judgments because very often the judgments are in comparison to a standard that is unrealistic. Do you hold yourself to a standard that is unrealistic? Now, I'm all for holding the bar bar high and to challenging ourselves. I'm not suggesting that we have low expectations for ourselves. I think it's perfectly wise to um, expect ourselves, to, to maybe expect is the wrong word, to endeavor to act from the best of our wisdom, our compassion, and our um, kindness. But nevertheless, Every now and then we really have to forgive ourselves for our errors. And we also have to forgive others for theirs. Fixing is another kind of thought. Have you ever sat in meditation just trying to fix something? Completely forgot about the breath, but maybe you're trying to fix. Some people try to fix personal problems. So they go through, how are they going to do this? What's the problem they're trying to fix? Some people try to fix um, other people's personal problems. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Some people try to fix technical problems. Some people try to fix all kinds of things. Whatever it is that you think is not quite right, sometimes the mind can deal with that, not by just sensing um, that discomfort that something isn't the way we want it to be. But we sit down and we try to gain control over it through fixing. It's like a fantasy. It's like just this story in the mind. Every once in a while, somebody will come up with a good idea this way, but more often than not, we spin our wheels. I had one student who was a real fixer. And um, he, he, he was kind of uncomfortable when he was sitting. It was, a, it was a, a, a meditation retreat. He was a little uncomfortable. So he spent quite a bit of time designing meditation seats. Actually, he came up with some very creative ones. The things I had not seen, none of the traditional ones. Not, not a zafu, not a um, bench, none of the ordinary, not a chair. But he liked to bicycle, so he developed these designs with bicycle seats. And they were actually quite creative. Some of them rocked and moved so that they had different angles. Some of them were on like posts so that it kind of like, like you got like this little balancing exercise at the same time. Some were a little bit more stable. And, and he kept trying out and he would come to the next retreat with like a different design <laughs> that was developed on the previous retreat. Eventually, he realized that he could just notice it as fixing and, and let a lot of that struggle go. It didn't actually matter so much what he was sitting on. 
Instructing is the next kind of thought I want to mention. Do you ever find yourself telling yourself what to do when you're meditating? Just instructing yourself. Now direct your attention to the breath. Now feel the in-breath. Now feel the out-breath. Now notice your thinking and now bring the mind back. You can do it without instructing, but sometimes, sometimes it's good to, to remind ourselves, to have a, a little reminder within ourselves we don't, that we don't mind giving ourselves good advice. This is fine, but it can get obsessive where we just keep telling ourselves what to do. If this becomes a habit, we might be telling ourselves what we'll be doing in the future, tomorrow. We might be telling ourselves what our experience is going to be like. And it might turn into a fantasy of that we narrate meditations that haven't even happened yet. Sometimes we tell other people instead of ourselves. We start to have an experience. Maybe we're sitting here and we're feeling very calm, very peaceful. And we interrupt that calmness and peace to start telling, imagining that what we're going to tell our spouse when we go home or our friend at work when we go to work and how we think they should come and meditate so that they can feel more peaceful and calm too. Now, thinking is not bad. It's really not a problem in meditation. Our minds think, and believe me, it is much better to think than to not have the capacity to think. But what we do in meditation isn't to try to stop thoughts. What we do is we try to see if they are being fueled and fed by craving conceit and views. Are the thoughts proliferating out of control, perpetuating habits that we might be a lot happier and wiser without? Are we lost in thought. In meditation practice, we confront our thinking patterns directly so that we train our our attention to be mindful to the thinking process, not lost in the content and the stories, but start to notice the patterns and the fact that we're thinking. We can cultivate wholesome thoughts also, wholesome intention, kind thoughts, compassionate thoughts, thoughts of gratitude, thoughts of generosity. But we do not need to create thought-free states to develop mindful awareness. Through meditation, we're cultivating a skillful application of the mind. We're using the thought to direct our mind to experience a clarity and a calmness in just sitting and breathing, being aware of what's happening in the body, being aware of what's happening in the mind. We can abandon unwholesome thoughts. We can affect and influence those unwanted habits that lead to aggression, fear, and resentment. Long before the psychological profession developed cognitive restructuring techniques. The Buddha taught his disciples to look into the mind, to know what thought was arising, to discern if it was wholesome or unwholesome, and if it was not a thought we wanted in our lives, to replace it, 
to change our tendencies. If we have a thought of judgment and hatred, to replace it with one of understanding or kindness or love. There's a lot of thought that we can just let go of. The kinds of thoughts that just pass the time, that appear to entertain ourselves, but when we look more closely, they're actually distorting our perception. We are actually the experts on our own minds. We know when our thoughts are hurting us, and we know when they're helping us. Our thoughts might be pleasant, they might be painful. What's important isn't so much whether they're pleasant or painful, what's important is where they're leading. Is there an end to thinking? Will our minds ever be calm and quiet? As our concentration develops, as our mindfulness develops, the thoughts become lighter, more buoyant, less distracting, less disturbing, less seductive. We might even be able to recognize them as discrete thoughts and we'll gain a great deal of flexibility to be able to let go of those thoughts that we want to let go of. So that, as the Buddha said in the, in the Middle Link Discourses, a liberated one will think whatever thought he wishes to think and not think whatever thought he does not wish to think. I believe this is quite possible, but I urge you to find out for yourself. What thoughts do you think? And what thoughts can you let go of, abandon, not entertain? I'd like to end with a poem by Neoshul Kenrin Pache. Because though we do spend a lot of time thinking, actually sometimes we might need to just give it a bit of a rest. He said, or wrote, Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in an infinite ocean of samsara. So I'd like to take a few minutes to just discuss maybe in, with a, pe- a couple of people next to you. And if you came with somebody, turn away from them. You can talk with them on your drive home. And I'd like you to just share a little bit about the kinds of thoughts that you find, the mental habits that you find circle around your life a lot. Do you tend to plan? Do you tend to, to ruminate? Do you tend to fix? Do you, what, do you tend to compare? Do you tend to judge? And can you discern whether or not your top patterns, do they tend to be fueled by craving, by conceit, or by views? We all think we all have our patterns. There's no good or bad in this. But I would like it if you wouldn't mind to just just get with me two or three, four people next to you, and we'll just talk for ten minutes, maybe five minutes, ten minutes.
So did you have any thoughts? <laughs> there were a few, huh? So did anybody think that they were the only person who sat down and meditated and just thought? <laughs> the mind is a challenging thing, and people approach it in lots of different ways. But one of the things we find is that whatever is happening in our minds, it's probably happening in other people's too. You might have slightly different kinds of thoughts, but we can... We're, did anybody have only a calm mind? <laughs> no? Okay. Uh, any comments or questions about thinking? How to work with thoughts in your practice? Well, then, next week we're going to work with a specific kind of thought called intention. So, so that's a more focused use of thought. And I look forward to seeing you again next week then. Okay, bye. <laughs> Good night.